Well, um, were you guys here two weeks ago when we started this uh, series or this uh, two-part thing about the Beatitudes? You were here, right? Everybody? Awesome. <laughs> well, we're going <clears> to <throat> pick it up tonight. And um, i just kind of refresh what we talked about as far as entering into this study on the Beatitudes. I was kind of inspired by our reading um, plan that we started a, a few weeks ago. And when I got to the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord said, hey, I want you to talk about that. And um, let's really tear those verses apart and start to see what they really mean. So that's kind of what led us here. And um, man, it, <coughs> sorry, it just seems like when you peel back one layer, there's another one. You peel back that layer and there's another one, right? Isn't that how the word works though? And so um, just to kind of catch us up, I talked about the kingdom last time as a whole and that, that Jesus came, the, the big picture reason why he came was to establish his kingdom, right? To establish his kingdom. Uh, part of that is the salvation of us because, you know, we are his kingdom. And so that had to be part of the reason he came, yes. But the big picture reason is Jesus came to this earth to establish his kingdom. And so because he didn't have any authority on this earth to establish his kingdom... He had to establish his kingdom through us, right? And so the way that he had to initiate that was to establish his kingdom first in our hearts, in us. And so he had to do what he did to, to regain authority in our lives and, and allow us to put him in a place of kingship in our lives, right? So that the kingdom could be established in us first. And so we are the kingdom of God on this earth right now. Through us, the kingdom operates. Amen? And so um, we learned that this little portion of what we call the Beatitudes is basically Jesus' constitutional foundation for his kingdom. I like what it says in that movie, The Chosen. It says that, he, it's Jesus talking. He says, if you want to find me, find these groups of people. You want to find me on this earth? Find these groups of people and that's where you find my kingdom. The blessed ours, right? And so these beatitudes is like the laying out of his kingdom constitution. And so we as his disciples, just like his disciples then we are his disciples, and what we learned that that word <laughs> disciple means a learner, or even more specific, a learner that learns from doing or on the job training. So we are being <laughs> discipled, sorry guys, <clears throat> by way of Jesus teaching us. We're, we're our lives are on-the-job training for the big kingdom to come. Amen? And so I want to be a part of that camp. I want to be a, a learner by endeavor. In other words, learning by doing. I'm going to be a doer of the word. Amen? And so that word, when we got to the blessed are this and blessed are that, that word blessed, it means enriched, happy, fortunate, delighted, blissful. It actually, in the Amplified Classic, says, happy and to be envied. To be envied. So when the word says, blessed are you, you are to be envied by the people of the world because of the blessing that's on you. That's pretty good. That's really good, good news. And so we got through um, verse 6, I believe it was. And we were on our way to verse 7. So let's just turn there to um, Matthew chapter 5. <clears throat> and um, let's just read these again all the way through before we get started. 
Matthew 5, verse 1. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. And his disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Y'all remember the poor in spirit, right? Is not poor, downtrodden, beat down in the ground, so sad. That means way more than that. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Meek just means teachable, humble, right? Not weakly, all right? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All right, so verse 7 right there says, Blessed are the merciful, that's where we got to, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now I told you guys that the first half of that was good, but the second half is gooder. Tonight's going to be gooder. It's going to be much gooder. So listen to this. Mercy, we've all heard that word mercy. Shout it out if you know what it means. Mercy. God's mercy. It's when you deserve a punishment, but you don't get it. Right? You deserve some sort of consequence, but you don't get that consequence. You don't get that punishment. It is withheld from you. Amen? That's mercy. It's when you don't get what you do deserve. So we, we as sinners... We deserve hell. But in God's mercy, He gave mercy to us, and so we don't have to have that. We don't have to get that. Right? So that's mercy. When we, when we don't get something that we actually do deserve, when it's not put upon us, in other words. And so, as Christians, and what I'm going to show you right here in this verse is that we are supposed to give mercy as well as receive mercy. Give mercy as well as receive mercy. So it's not a real good thing to need some mercy if you haven't been putting any mercy in the bank. A lot of people need mercy. And when you need it, you need it. And it's gonna, there will be a time when you need mercy from human from individuals, and from God. You're going to need some mercy in your life. And it'll be a real bad place for you to get to if you need some mercy and you hadn't banked up some mercy. Because that's the way it works, right? So, I was thinking about the judgment going on in this world right right now. There's so much, like, judgment among people. Judging one another, right? And mercy is a real good thing to be tossing around these days. Amen? How can we expect mercy from God when we're wanting judgment against other people? How can we expect mercy from God if we haven't shown other people mercy? Lord, have mercy on me. But judging your neighbor. Right? holding things against them that you should let go of, right? We want God's forgiveness for ourselves, but we don't have time to show forgiveness for someone else. Right? That's pretty tight right there. And so, the thing is, is that's just plain old childish. That's just unbeliever behavior. That is, that, that is immature Christian behavior, Right? And so we should be willing to forgive others if for no other reason at all 
then we just think about how much God's forgiven us. I mean, if we just think for one second how much we've been forgiven thousands of times over, why are we holding this one little thing against somebody? Amen? And so, if we don't choose forgiveness, it's not going to be very well. It, it, things are just not going to go well for us. Let's look at Matthew 18. Turn over real quick, Matthew 18, 23. Matthew 18, starting verse 23, it says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven, there it is, we're talking about the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servant. And as he began to set the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. And the servant, verse 26, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. And the servant's master took pity, that's mercy, he had mercy on him and canceled the debt and let him go. But then when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and he grabbed him up and began to choke him. And pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I'll pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay back the debt. When the other servant <coughs> saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that happened. And then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in anger, his master turned him over to the jailers until he should pay back all that he owed. <coughs> this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. That's a pretty strict story right there. Amen. All right. So... People who don't deserve it need our mercy. We look at them and we want, I want my money now, I want it back. But there's a bigger picture behind that. And they deserve, they need, they don't deserve, but they need our mercy. They need our mercy. And so when you think about how good God's been to you, how He's protected you, when you didn't deserve it, how He's forgiven you when you didn't deserve it, how He's been patient with you when you didn't deserve it, if you just think for a minute, can you give mercy to someone else? Now I want to show you something. This is so good, guys. Y'all get ready. Get your pencil ready. Get your pen ready. Turn to Luke. Turn to Luke chapter 6. Luke 6, starting in 36. Luke 6, 36. It says, be ye, uh, be ye therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. Judge not, and ye shall not be judged. Condemn not, and ye shall not be condemned. Forgive, and ye shall be forgiven. Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that ye meet withal, it shall be measured to you again. Alright? How many of you have heard that verse read during an offering talk, a giving talk. Give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure pressed down. You've heard it, right? During a, a giving talk. And that's not unscriptural. There are promises in the Word that are cross-usable. 
In other words, you, if it's a promise, it says give and it shall be given unto you. That's a promise. Whether it's talking about love, whether it's talking about forgiveness, whether it's talking about your money, it's a promise and it rings true across the board. But read and taken in context according to where and how it was written or why he said it, Jesus is talking about mercy right here. He's not talking about money. It still rings true for money, but he's actually talking about mercy. The way you give is the way you're going to get, is what it says. The way you give mercy is the way you will receive mercy. Are you getting that? If you want mercy in good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, and I want it that way, I want mercy that way, then you got to give it that way. It's biblical. It's scriptural. Right? Do you know why God is so rich in mercy? Because mercy is one of those things that is a big topic. It's a big deal to God. It's a big deal. Why is God's mercy so big? It's because of what Pastor Allen's been talking about. It's because of love. Love is the source of God's mercy. God has a burning desire. Remember that desire we talked about? The hunger and thirst after righteousness that, we, that God instructed us like from last time? That hunger in God is His love for us. He has a burning desire to love us. Right? And this all-consuming love that he has is sometimes referred to as compassion. Compassion. You all know that word, right? Compassion. God wants to reach out to this world, this broken world, this hurting world, and show mercy towards us. That's his desire to show us mercy. Mercy is, you can write this down, an outward expression of God's compassion. (coughs) Amen? Mercy is the outward expression of God's compassion. Amen? Y'all got it? Mercy, mercy, mercy. Amen. All right, let's move on to verse 8. Verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is juicy right here. How many of you want to see God? I want to see God. Now, it sounds so wonderful to think that you're pure in heart. Oh. Snow White, she was pure in heart. It sounds so clean, right? And then even more awesome than being pure in heart is to be able to see God. This one verse just makes you like, (sighs) right? It just sounds so great. I want to just give you a little analogy. Look at, Psalm 24. Psalm 24, verse 3. Psalm 24:3, starting in verse 3. It says, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? In other words, who can see God? And then it says, He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul into vanity, 
or sworn deceitfully, he shall receive this blessing from the Lord. Another translation starts out and says, Who dares climb the mountain of the Lord? Right? And so, climbing this mountain that it's talking about is like our striving to see God by way of a pure heart. We've got to get our heart pure. And so, His glory, God's glory, is only seen by those who are willing to climb this mountain. This is important. Kaylee, you want to see God, right? I want to see God. There's a mountain to climb. It says it right there. Who has ascended? Who dares climb this mountain of the Lord? And so, there's this mountain. But it is a difficult climb. It is our spiritual Mount Everest. Right? And there is a lot of sacrifice that goes into this climbing. A lot of challenges. A lot more so than if we just stay at the base camp. Because many of us are at the base camp. Oh, I want to see God, but I ain't got time for that. Because I got this over here to do. And I, I wish I could see God, but I'm too busy with this over here. And we stay at base camp. We're saved. We have our moments. We worship. We, but we're at the base camp. And if you want to climb the mountain, there's some discipline. There's some training that has to happen. Right? But when you get to the top, when you get to the other side, you will be so glad that you were challenged and you took the challenge to make this climb. Because the glory of God is right there. The glory of God can be experienced by those who choose to make this climb. Now, I got to thinking about mountain climbing and, you know, Pastor Allen, he likes to watch these documentaries and such and you know, movies about people crashing in the mountains on an airplane. I don't know what, yeah. But, you know, we've learned some things about mountain climbing just by watching documentaries. And so, you know, if you were going to climb Mount Everest, let's just say Jordan, he just said, Rebecca, I'm about to start training. I'm going to climb Mount Everest. Right? So, the first place you start is at base camp. You're at, the, you're at the base. You're at base camp. And you have to take it in stages. You get from base camp to the next camp, the next camp. You know, you have to go up in stages. And, you know, you have to make these ascend, ascent up the mountain in steps. You can't just take a helicopter and jump out on the top. Your lungs will collapse. Right? So you have to go gradually. So sometimes it can take like three months. You might spend three weeks at one base camp just letting your lungs adjust. And what's happening in that time is, is your body is adjusting to the altitude. And you're training and you're disciplining your body along this climb. Right? And what's happening inside, Jordan, if I'm not mistaken, is your red blood cells are multiplying because there's less oxygen up there. So your red blood cells multiply to carry more oxygen. Right? And so by the time you reach that final camp, your red blood cells have basically doubled in number. You got twice as many red blood cells flowing than you did when you started at base camp. That's to keep you alive. Amen? And so, to survive this kind of climb, it takes dedication, it takes training, it takes commitment, it takes passion. I said passion. Passion for what you're doing. Nothing else matters. Right? And so let me just tell you this. There are some blessings in your life that you can't receive from God down at base camp. 
There's some things that He wants to impart to you, but you can't get them down there. There's some things He wants to show you, but you can't get them at base camp. You can't get them down there. You've got to move up. You've got you to gotta move up to the next camp. And moving up comes with fresh new revelation of faith. Your faith is multiplied, increased, every time you go to the next base camp or the next camp, the next altitude. As you ascend, your faith is increased. Right? And every time you do that, there's more revelation there. There's more knowledge. There's more wisdom. There's more understanding. There's more clarity every time you make that commitment to climb a little higher, climb a little higher, climb a little higher, and the red blood cells of your faith begin to double. You get what I'm saying? Your red blood cell, your faith blood cells start doubling up. And you get more revelation. And you, 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 you start to see things more clearly. And what you read in this book that didn't make sense before suddenly makes sense. And the things that God calls you to do that you thought, I can't ever do that, suddenly is attainable. You can do it. You know you can do it. And you do it. And then when you do that, He gives you another one and you go up to the next level. And you know what? Before long, you see God. You get up so high, you are in His presence, and you begin to see Him that you couldn't see Him at base camp. But you don't just get to jump up there. It takes dedication. It takes commitment. It takes a pureness of heart. Because you can't make that climb. You can't get up there just by obeying some laws. The law ain't going to get you there. There has to be a purity of heart. Like that climber, all he, all he thinks about, all he cares about, I'm talking about the natural climber, is Mount Everest. I'm going to the top. I'm getting there. I don't care what I got to do to train. I don't care what I have to do to discipline myself. I'm taking this challenge. I'm doing, I don't think about nothing else. Because I'm going to get the reward of standing up on top of Mount Everest. Okay, but I want to see God. I want to see God. Blessed are the pure in heart. They're the ones that will see God. How you get that purity of heart? You just dedicate yourself to Him. Right? You begin to take those steps up, up, up. And you have to do it from a place of a pure heart. No agendas, no preacher telling you. Even this Bible reading plan that, that we're doing, and I'm encouraging everybody to do it. If you're doing it because I said so, that's not a purity of heart. That's doing it because of the law. That's doing it because, you know, I don't want anybody to find out I didn't do it, so I'm going to do mine. There's a difference in that and doing it because i got to get all I can. I want to see God. That's a pure heart. Y'all got it? Amen. I think there's some battles, some things that we face that try to keep us from having this pure heart. Trying to maintain that pure heart. One of the greatest battles that we face is, I believe, the spirit of conformity of this world. You think about it now. I want to have a pure heart before God. I'm going to pursue Him, and I don't care what the world says. But then the spirit of conformity to the world comes against you. Romans 12.2 says, Be not conformed to this world. Right. Be transformed. But there is such a strong pull to the world. Such a strong pull from the world because that's what's popular. What the world says is what's popular. What the world says is what's fashionable. And it is near impossible 
Listen to me. I'm going to change that phrase. It is impossible. It is impossible to be a part of this world and keep a pure heart. You can't do it. The pure heart I'm talking about that's going to see God has no connection to this world other than I'm breathing some air and I'm living here and I'm doing what God called me to do, to minister, to please Him. Amen? You, you cannot be a part of this world, be conformed in any way to this world, and keep a pure heart. The, the Phillips translation of that verse, Romans 12 too, it says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. That's good. There is an unpure, because we're trying to keep a pure heart, there's an unpure spirit about this world. An unpure spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.12 mentions this spirit. It says, now... We have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God. What are the characteristics of the Spirit of this world? Let's look at 1 John. Y'all turn to 1 John 2 and verse 15. 1 John chapter 2. Sorry, I just wanted to stay on this a minute because this is important. 1 John 2, verse 15. Here's our answer. What are the traits of the spirit of this world? It says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You see that? For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And so the three characteristics listed right there of the spirit of this world are lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now think real hard. Just those three categories. Think real hard. Every single worldly desire can fall under one of those three things. Everyone. Everyone. Every worldly desire falls under one of those three things. And that is a picture of our worldly society. This is how the world lives. Right there. By the lust of the flesh... Lust of the eyes, pride of life. And so how do, you, how do you resist? How do you overcome this? That's a seductive spirit. It's strong. It's influential. It's controlling. How do you overcome it? 2 Timothy 2 and 22. 2 Timothy 2, 22. It says this in the Living Bible. It says, Run from anything that gives you evil thoughts, but stay close to anything that makes you want to do right. Enjoy the companionship of those who love the Lord and have what? Pure hearts. The King James says, follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call upon the Lord out of a pure heart. Amen? I want to encourage you guys to start thinking about this pure heart thing. It's important. Check your heart every now and then. Check yourself. Am I being influenced by anything in this world? Am I being led by something in this world? Have a pure heart and desire only God and His will. Amen? Amen, amen. All right. Man, tick-tock. Let's keep going.
Verse 9. Verse 9. It says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. All right. So we think about a peacemaker as someone who never causes any trouble, right? That's kind of true, but not exactly. Not exactly. The very word peacemaker. Everybody say peacemaker. Peacemaker means you make peace. So it implies you got to do something. It's not just somebody that sits back and doesn't cause any trouble. Okay? Peacemaker means you got to make peace. That means you, you got to get up and do something. So what is the thing that they get up and do? Well, the thing that a peacemaker gets up and does is confront people in love to bring truth, to bring restoration, to bring healing to them in some kind of way. Okay? And so it's going to someone and calling them out on something. That kind of sounds like a troublemaker. I mean, you could interpret it as that troublemaker, not that peacemaker. But the goal is to cause them to have peace. And so that is actually true, the true act of peacemaking. Peacemaker doesn't put on a facade and pretend like they're your friend and then talk about you behind your back. They talk about you to your face. Right? <laughs> so how many times you've been around somebody and they offended you a while back and you have to put on that fake smile and that that everything's okay, I'm not mad at you, when on the inside you really, really are mad at them. You're like held on to something and you hadn't let it go yet. Right? Peacemaking has a whole lot to do with offense. Or overcoming offense. Right? A peacemaker, a person that's a peacemaker, desires sincerity and truth and love, and they cannot operate in the presence of offense. They just, they, they can't stand that offensive spirit. They can't stand something being between them or another person or two other people. They're fixers. They want to go fix what's wrong. And a lot of times that's interpreted as being a busybody, troublemaker, nosy Nancy or whatever. All right? If you receive it that way, then that's the way you interpret it. But I don't want to put on a fake smile and a fake face in front of people. Amen? I just refuse to hold on to offense. Not going to do it. Offense, <clears throat> refusing to allow offense to go. The Bible calls it a root of bitterness. A root of bitterness. Hebrews twelve fourteen and 15. Hebrews twelve fourteen fifteen 15 says, In every relationship, be swift to choose peace over competition and run swiftly towards holiness. For those who are not holy <coughs> will not see the Lord. That's harsh. Then it says, verse 15, Watch over each other to make sure no one misses the revelation of God's grace. And make sure no one lives with a root of bitterness sprouting up within them, which will only cause trouble and poison the hearts of many. Bitterness is a root. And if a root <coughs> is watered, if a root is nourished and fed and, and taken care of, and, you know, it'll take, it'll go deep. And if it's not dealt with, it'll get really, it'll set in a root will. And so, if that root of bitterness sets in, then it's going to grow. And it says that a person that begins, the Bible says a person that allows that root of bitterness to take 
hold, that person will be defiled. It means soiled, filthy, polluted. Bitterness is nastiness. Right? It's just nastiness. Pollution. And so, in that verse it even says, watch over each other. Sounds to me like the Lord is instructing us to get in each other's business. Right? It says, make sure no one lives with a root of bitterness. Well, how are you going to make sure they don't if you don't go over and talk to them about it? Confront them. Hey, you know, that thing you got going on between you and -and so-and-so, how about clear that up? Right? It says, right, it's instructing us, watch over each other. Make sure no one lives with a root of bitterness. It's got to be dealt with immediately. Amen? We don't want anything holding us back from God. Amen? Amen. We got time for one more? Y'all ready for it? You want to get to the end or you want to go home? Get to the end or go home? Let's finish. All right. All right. Here we go. Verse 10 through 12. We're doing them all together. This is the last bit. It said, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. That was back to the Beatitudes, right? That's the very end. So, persecution. This is the last thing we're going to talk about. It is an inevitable part of a Christian's life. It's coming. Persecution is coming. Right? Matter of fact, the only Christians who don't suffer persecution are the ones who aren't living godly enough. Sorry. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, For all who choose to live godly as worshipers of Jesus, the Anointed One, will (coughs) also experience persecution. All who choose to live godly will experience persecution. Right there. And so persecution is like Satan's shovel. That's how I pictured it. And... Its purpose is to uproot the Word of God that's already been planted in you. So you got the Word in you, right? You got the Word in you, but persecution comes along to dig it out. That's the whole point of it, is to dig it out. By taking our eyes off of Jesus, by stopping us from fulfilling God's plan for our life, whatever it is, persecution is sent to us to stop us, and to get the Word of God out of us. To, to make us, who said doubt and unbelief earlier, Kaylee? Persecution is sent to you to cause you to doubt the Word of God. Amen? And so there's different forms of persecution. The first one is having our lives threatened because of our faith in Jesus. Right? Now, that happens in a lot of other countries, and we don't see it a whole lot here. But there are people who are persecuted to the point of their life is being threatened or even taken. Right? But as bad as that is, and you do lose your life, like, that's pretty bad. In the big picture, that type of persecution is not the most damaging to the Christian faith to the community of believers, to the church. Yeah, it's damaging to that one person that dies. That's bad. But it's not the biggest damaging type of persecution. Actually, when people's lives are taken, it actually causes revival to to break out. It has the opposite effect. When people are killed 
for their faith, it causes the church to rise up. So it, it actually has the opposite effect. And <clears throat> the, the ultimate goal is not met right there. But a more deadlier form of persecution is the type that goes like this. People speaking evil about you or cutting you off from the group because you're a Christian. Talking bad about you. Slandering your name. Pinpointing you as one of those people. Right? That's a, that's a more deadly approach for persecution. Because it said it even in that verse. It said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That's Jesus talking. It's a more subtle way of getting at you. Right? I mean, most people would never, you know, deny the Lord. There, there are people that have lost their lives because they took a stand when someone said, you know, do you believe in Jesus? Yes, I do. Boom, and they died. Most people are not going to deny the Lord in the face of death. By gosh, I'm going to stand for my Jesus. Right? But when it comes to making fun of you, cutting you out of the group, slandering your name all over the newspaper, calling you this name and that name, right? And you have to carry that and live with it and and you got it's like this heavy burden and and people are talking about you and they don't like you anymore and they don't come to your church anymore cuz you say these truths and nobody wants to hear the truth or are you in your school you stand up for you know prayer or whatever and people laugh at you that's hard to carry that around oh my gosh they don't like me anymore and people take it they take that personally they take it as if it's a personal attack. And it's not really us that's being persecuted at all. It's not really, if someone is persecuting me for my faith, it's not really me that they're persecuting. Right? Look at Acts. Look at Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, verse 4. <coughs> Paul's on the road to Damascus. And verse 4 says this. He fell to the ground, because a light suddenly shined in his eyes, and he fell to the ground. And he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? This is Jesus talking to him. Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now see, Paul had been persecuting the Jews. He'd been persecuting the Jews. But Jesus said he was actually persecuting him. Wasn't really the Jews that was the whole point of the persecution. It was Jesus. And they were actually just partakers of the suffering of Jesus. That's scriptural. We could look it up. We could look up a bunch of verses. Partaking of the suffering of Jesus is part of our being persecuted. They're not after us. They're after the Jesus in us. Amen? And so, just like we share in the suffering of Jesus, the Word says, we will also share in the reward with Jesus. Flip right over to Romans 8. I just got to read a few of these. Romans 8, 17. Romans 8, 17. It says, Now, <clears throat> if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in His suffering, in order that we may also share in His glory. Verse 18. 
I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Hallelujah. And so, with all that in mind, we can actually shout for joy when somebody persecutes. Actually, Luke's version of the Beatitudes are a little bit different. You can read them, but it says right there, when you're persecuted, shout for joy. Shout for joy, knowing that we will receive the same reward that Jesus received. That's good. And so, I want you to know several things about persecution before we go. The first thing you need to know, persecution is going to come. We just read it. And yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It can come as verbal insults. It can come as government mandates. Hello? It can come as some kind of physical harm. It could come as ultimate death. But it is coming. In one form or another, you as a Christian bearing Jesus on the inside of you, persecution's coming because you believe. It's just coming. And the truth is, if you're not suffering at least some little form of persecution, the Word says you're not living godly enough. Ouch! If you're living for Jesus, somebody will say something about it at some point. If you are living a godly life, somebody's going to call you out on it somewhere. Amen? That's Bible. It's in the Bible. Alright? So the second thing I want you to know is, and this is going to clear something up for a few people, you need to turn the other cheek. Turn the other cheek. Now, for a lot of people, this does not compute. Does not compute, right? I don't get it. Turn the other cheek. Nope, nope, nope. So, I want to clear up a little misconception about this turning the other cheek. If you go back to the Beatitudes in Mark 5, I mean Matthew chapter 5, Verse 10, it says, God blesses, this is, I'm going to read this, what is this, from the the New Living Translation. It says, God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it, it says. Be very glad. For a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. But then, if you just go down just a little farther, in verse 38. Now, we hadn't changed the subject. We're still talking about persecution. Jump right on down to verse 38. It says this. And you have heard that it was said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, Not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Right? And so right there is a huge misunderstanding that has, like, plagued the Christian walk for centuries. And it's caused people to say, I don't want nothing to do with that Christian faith because you just got to let people tramp all over you and slap you on one cheek and turn the other cheek. And you just, I don't even want to be a Christian. All right? And so let's get this straight, what it's talking about. The Bible makes it ultimately clear. Tell me if I'm wrong. It says in James 4, 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Doesn't it say that? And so that sounds like it contradicts Matthew 5, 39 that says, turn the other cheek, and if you get one cheek slapped and turn the other one, that sounds like two different things, doesn't it? 
If you get slapped on one cheek, turn the other one. And over here it says, resist the devil and he will flee. How can it be both? It can't be both because you're reading one of them out of context. <laughs> okay? So let's get it straight. Matthew 5, 38 and 39 is instructing, it's Jesus instructing his disciples about the conduct of their ministry regarding persecution. Remember, persecution is when people come against you for your faith in Jesus. That's it. That's what he's talking about. <coughs> he's talking about, he's telling them how to deal with people who oppose you because of your faith. He's not talking about the devil. He's not even talking about evil people that do evil things to you. He's talking about persecution. When people... When evil people come against you because of your stand for Jesus, you don't have to defend yourself. You're not supposed to defend yourself. You're supposed to turn the other cheek. Did you hear me? On the other occasion, when you are confronted by evil from the devil or an evil person that has nothing to do with persecuting you of your faith, you are strongly instructed to resist the devil. That's it. Somebody breaks in your house and kills your dog, are you going to turn the other cheek and offer them your cat too? No! That's evil. Come into your house to destroy, kill, steal, and destroy. That's, you resist that. Right? You resist evil in every possible way. Except when you are being persecuted for your faith. And that's what it means to turn the other cheek. You just simply love your persecutor and you let them see the light of Jesus on the inside of you. That is how you change their heart. Okay? And it's not the actual person anyway. It's the evil in them. So we're going back to offense. Don't hold any offense against them. Forgive them. Have mercy on them. It's not them. It's the evil in them that's persecuting the good in you. Amen? And so the most effective thing you can do is to smile to love them, I know that sounds super, super difficult. That's what the Word instructs us to do. You can use persecution to advance the kingdom of God. Amen? They'll see something in you, some tolerance of their criticism, and, it, and a light will come on. Amen? And the third thing, the last thing I want you to know about persecution is that it carries a great reward. Alright? When you're willing to be faithful to Jesus, even unto death. Everybody say, even unto death. When you're faithful to Jesus, even unto death, He said He'd give you a crown of life. He would give you the crown of life. Now, in America... Again, that's not likely right now that we would be... It has happened, but it's not the normal... It doesn't happen every day like it does in some other countries in America. And that's why we don't think about it. But that doesn't mean that doesn't need to be our standard. We need to have a standard in us that would absolutely never, never... Turn in the face of persecution. Amen? Amen. So, that's the one way you're going to inherit the crown of life. And, you know, don't be so arrogant now in this stand that you need to make that you would dare say, Oh, I would never deny Jesus out of your head. And it's not coming from your heart. Because I know a guy named Peter who did that. And then he ended up denying Jesus three times. Right? 
And he walked with Jesus. And he saw his miracles. And he stood right in his presence. And he still denied him three times. So there's a lot of places in the scripture when I can say, be like Peter. And there's a lot of places where you can say, don't be like Peter. That's one of them. (laughs) Decide in your heart, I will never falter, waver in my belief under any persecution ever. And then that verse says, rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward. So when persecution comes, it ought not make us heavy burdened, beat down. Oh my gosh, you just don't know what I'm going through right now. You know what? If a report comes to you and someone has persecuted you or slandered you because of the name of Jesus or the heart of Jesus in you, that's when you ought to jump up and start singing a worship song. That's what the Word says. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. You ought not even think about the persecution. You ought to say, thank you, bring it on. Look at my reward coming in heaven. That's the way we ought to react to that. Amen? Hallelujah. All right. There you have it. That's the Beatitudes all wrapped up.